Good afternoon, everybody. It is Wednesday, 1500 time for the Proceedings Podcast. This is episode 18. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. With me, as always, is Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach of the Naval Institute. Ward is a retired uh, F-14 pilot, Navy commander, who wrote the trilogy about... uh, the hero Punk, who was an F-14 pilot, his first book, Punk's War, came out in uh, 2001. Punk's Wing, a few years after that, and Punk's Fight after that. Ward, Hello, how are but you? I wasn't a pilot. I was a Rio. I said, I said pilot. I'm yes. sorry. My parents knew each other. <laughs> Rio of the year. Rio of the century. Yes. Rio's not a thing anymore, right? They're now called Wizzos, backseaters in the Super Hornet. Um, so Rio was radar intercept officer. You guys who love Top Gun remember that, Maverick and Goose. Um, I was Goose. But that was a F-4, F-14 designation um, that uh, that doesn't exist anymore. So anyway, that's that's really a really good intro, Bill. Thank you for that. <laughs> All right. So what are All we right. going to do on the show today? So we got- today we're going to recap a bit of what happened at West last week in San Diego. We were both out there with the... Uh, a lion's share of the Naval Institute staff um, for the annual AFSIA, U.S. Naval Institute West Conference, which was a huge hit. And we're going to introduce uh, and interview today a staff writer from USNI News, Megan Eckstein, who uh, covered West, was out there last week, and has written uh, a number of stories uh, since then. Yeah. Well, it's not really an interview. It's more a conversation. We've invited Megan as a member of the USNI team to join us. And, you know, we've had Sam on the show before, and... Uh, we love to have our USNI news team uh, whenever their busy schedule uh, allows. So this is a super busy week for Megan because of the budget rollout. So, uh, Megan, thanks for uh, for phoning in to the uh, Proceedings Podcast. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me today. appreciate it. So we were just, you and I were just at CSIS for uh, a, a really interesting panel dealing with uh, some of the aftershocks of last summer's two uh, at sea mishaps, the two collisions at sea, um, and uh, Admiral Belial, for the first time since he submitted his report in 2010, spoke publicly about that report, which was pretty groundbreaking, I think, or earth-shattering. And uh, secondly, we he- heard from the new ship boss, uh, Admiral Brown. But before we get to that, let's talk about West last week. What were some of your impressions uh, from the panels and the folks that you got to talk to out there? What what what, what were some of your takeaways? Uh, well, for me, um, you know, we heard a lot of great updates in terms of what the Navy's doing, um, you know, trying to create sort of a whole fleet. But what really caught my attention, you know, the Chief of Naval Operations kind of has his six-pronged approach to uh, naval power right now that he's been talking about. But sort of the networked fleet portion is very interesting. Um, you know, the Navy's been pushing kind of distributed maritime operations for a little bit now, but we had a lot of panelists kind of talk about how how you're going to do that, how, you know, ships and airplanes and people are adapting new tools to uh, to share data, share communications a little bit better. And uh, I didn't have as much time as I might have liked to walk the floor, um, but some of the contractors that came out for the, for the booth there had some really fascinating technologies um, just to kind of bring people together either in a training environment or an operating environment just so... You know, everyone's seeing and, and hearing the same things as one another. So I really think this network to me is going to be interesting to watch as it evolves. And we, had, we heard from some procurement folks and, uh, you know, De- Deputy Secretary Shanahan uh, on, the, on the money side 
so that dovetails nicely into this week, which is the budget rollout. So what are some of the uh, first things that have struck you about this budget? Some of the uh, the disconnects and other things that uh, that you've seen so far. There seems to be some confusion, to put it mildly, with uh, various service officials and, and some of the folks uh, that you've asked questions about elements of the budget. So w- what, are, what are the first headlines of the budget rollout? Well, there's, so there's a lot of information that came out this week. Uh, we not only got the budget on Monday, we also got the 30-year shipbuilding plan, which uh, last year the Navy didn't release one publicly at all. Um, in previous years, they've released it a little bit after the budget. So um, there's a lot of new information right now. I would say you know, leading up to the budget release, I had several high-ranking officials kind of talk about, you know, wait for the budget to come out. I think you're going to be very impressed uh, with the shipbuilding plan. And at first glance, you know, 10 ships, $22 billion in the shipbuilding account. You kind of wonder how that math works out. And, you know, for all the talk that there had been about getting ready for a 355 ship Navy, you kind of wonder if 10 is the number to get you there. But I actually took a few minutes to look back at uh, some older budgets. So I started covering the Navy uh, right at the beginning of FY 2012. So right before uh, the Budget Control Act took place. And actually, this is this year's new budget request kind of is a really nice follow-on to FY 2012, you know, as if the DCA had never happened. Um, it's about the same number of ships, 10. And, uh, you know, so I think the Navy's really just trying to, to get back to what it was trying to do previously and, and put the Budget Control Act behind it right now. Yeah, so, uh, Megan, you wrote a, a piece yesterday in USNI News about that, about how the Navy is expected to grow by 46 ships in five years. Uh, so 10 per year, rough, you know, roughly, um, but also th- that there's a plan to increase the number of deployed hulls by 30%, and a 46% increase in the number of hulls is only about a 20% increase, 19 or something like that. Um, so the, the, the theme that we've been talking about a lot and that's been in the Strategic Readiness Review and the Comprehensive Review and, and the, the post-McCain and Fitzgerald uh, investigations has been that the the fleet has been overworked, overdeployed, and has not had enough time, you know, to do maintenance and training. And that mm-hmm. that um, demand signal for more forward presence, for 30 more ships to be deployed per day, uh, with only 46 more ships to do it, th- that doesn't balance out. So, you know, what are you hearing about that supply-demand uh, disconnect? Uh, truth be told, the Navy hasn't really been able to answer that question for me yet, Um so, yeah, so the according to the budget documents that came out on Monday, the Navy uh, by 2023, so five years from now, um, expects to have uh, 46 more ships in its inventory than it has today. Uh, that's partly through new ships delivering to the fleet. It's also through uh, postponing decommissionings. Uh, they're going to be extending the life of several several ships. Um, so they'll have a larger fleet, but they, like as you mentioned, they intend on having an average of about 31 more ships deployed at any given time. Uh, This morning, Vice Admiral Brown said at our CSIS event that part of that will come from having more ships like the Littoral Combat Ship, which will have a forward-deployed rotational crew model, so you'll have the ships out more often than you would if they were CONUS-based. But I I don't see how that accounts for 31 more ships at any given time. Uh, That might be a handful more ships, so we're really trying to understand where the Navy is going with this, how they're going to be preparing to have more people. And, 
you know, more training, more ship maintenance, more spares to support that many more ships out and about every day. Right. And, and you know, we've talked uh, to a number of our uh, authors, including Kevin Iyer uh, and a couple of uh, other surface warfare officers over the last maybe four or five months. And, you know, that the demand signal going down is what everyone is saying needs to happen, right? We need to actually mm-hmm. take a break instead of having the constant, uh, you know, hundred ships uh, underway or deployed every day uh, with the 280 80 ship Navy, that there needs to be a break in that demand signal for a while so that the, the fleet can catch up on maintenance and training. And, and also it'd be nice for some of the, uh, the junior folks to have a little bit better quality of life, uh, you know, with a little less deployed time, a little bit more time between deployments. Um, but it sounds like, you know, we, we, we saw the piece yesterday, uh, Admiral Fogo, the uh, Sixth Fleet commander or Navier commander saying that, that there's a lot going on in the Mediterranean and he needs more ships forward deployed as well. So the demand signal does not seem to be abating at all. No, not at all. I mean, you know, you could talk to any of the combatant commanders, any of the fleet commanders around the world, and they'll probably all tell you the same thing, that they need more presence. Um, So, you know, it's difficult. And, you know, to go back to this morning's CSIS event, one of the topics that came up is, uh, you know, you have all these different aspects of readiness. You have the manpower piece, you have, you know, maintenance, you have training, and everyone's kind of making decisions within their own lane, uh, but they're not necessarily complementary to one another. So, uh, you know, it might make perfectly good sense to have more submarines or more destroyers out and about uh, in Sixth Fleet to deal with the threats that are happening in the Mediterranean. But, um, you know, trying to find one person who who's looking out for all of the different needs around the globe and ensuring that everything balances one another is uh, really kind of difficult right yeah, now. Getting, getting back to West, it, you know, there was an interesting conversation on the last day with uh, Admiral Stavridis uh, sort of moderating the three uh, service sea service chiefs, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, Commandant of the Coast Guard, and the CNO, and they were talking about this a little bit. There was a, a little touch on the supply-demand thing, and uh, I like the analogy that Admiral Stavridis used, which was that as a combatant commander, um, you know, it's a bit like, uh, you, you know, the CNO is the, is the guy who buys the race car, uh, who mans the pit crew, who does the maintenance on the on the the race car? Uh, who puts the gas in the race car? Who buys the insurance on the race car? Uh, and then hands the keys over to the combatant commander, and the combatant commander just gets to drive it, which is a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> but at some point, you, you know, there needs to be a balance because if the combatant commander just keeps putting a lot of miles on that race car, it's not going to be as fast, and it's going to start to break down. There'll be safety problems. So. This is, you know, we've been talking about this. This has been a, a theme now for, what, eight months? Um, you know, and and I don't see it. Nobody seems to be stepping forward well, to make and, a change. And to fully blow out that NASCAR analogy, it's like, hey, um, Dale Jr., skip Daytona, right? You need to skip Daytona. Yeah. He's, he's not going to skip Daytona. It's just not happening. It doesn't matter how worn down the pit crew is. It doesn't matter whatever, right? And, and so, like we're saying, we're not seeing any abatement of the demand signals for op tempo. There was some lip service paid uh, in the wake of the second mishap last summer where Sino testified that uh, the the culture is so can do and we don't know how to say no and we're going to get better at that. There was some discussion about getting circadian rhythms squared away. Some of these other things. What was interesting just now at the CIS, CSIS event, 
was it, it seemed that the new ship boss, he, and check me on this, Megan, I, he sort of said that B-Doc, Baby Swass, isn't the problem. It didn't seem to me that he was saying that was fundamentally one of the issues we've got to attend to, which surprised me because that was our first takeaway with Kevin Iyer. And I also had a conversation with the previous ship boss here in town about a SWO flight school kind of a construct. And there's been some discussion about if we needed more IPs, where would they come from and that sort of stuff. Some Correct. rigor and, and a lot of track. a lot of retired and currently active SWOs have written about that topic, exactly. uh, you know, for proceedings or proceedings today in the last six months. But unless I misread him, he dismissed that. Um, Interesting. And the other causal factor that we discussed previously with Kevin and, and, and other authors was the the readiness maintenance piece, and I, I, I'm not sure that that was uh, part of what we're we're assigning that much blame to at this point. So I'm getting a little confused as to where we're headed in terms of after action based on the two mishaps and the, and the follow on mishap reports. Um, So uh, Admiral Belial, as we said, was there. He did a very dramatic aside uh, and he warned Pete Daly, who was the moderator, the CEO of the Naval Institute, that he was going to venture off topic or however he put it. But he started going off on Congress's culpability by not fully funding the force. Right. And and so, um, Megan, what did you think about that? Uh I, I think Admiral Belisle was able to say what a lot of people are thinking and not necessarily free to say. Um, you know, with, with the idea of Congress's role in all of this, um, the Navy has been pretty fortunate over the last handful of years that, you know, to a certain extent, whatever they've said that they need for, for safe operations around the world, they've more or less been able to get from Congress. But with all the continuing resolutions, they sometimes, you know, last year they didn't get their, their funding until I think it was the end of May. Uh, might have been the beginning of May, but you know, at that point, it's more than halfway through the year. Um, so, if you're responsible for planning ship maintenance availabilities, you don't know if you're getting that money. So, you can't contract efficiently. You can't get started doing work ahead and making sure all your materials are there. So, you end up waiting. And last year, there was actually a concern for a handful of ships that, even though that money eventually showed up, they might not have time to put those availabilities on contract during that fiscal year. Um, and the operations and maintenance money. Uh, disappears at the end of the year. So, you know, if you get your funding from lawmakers too late in the year, you might just not be able to spend it all. Um, So it's really becoming, I mean, it has been a problem for the Navy for several years in that, you know, ultimately they might get 100% of what they want, but they're not able to spend it efficiently. Uh, You might have some, you know, extra costs due to rushed orders that you're putting on materials. So really the money is not getting them as far as as the original planning might be. Um, So, I mean, that's nothing... The Navy can really address on its own. They just need the money to show up at the beginning of the fiscal year. So the shipbuilding plan is roughly 355 by 2050, right? Uh, it's in the 2050s, yes. Yeah. So what's this year's version of that? What what What's the first chunk that, that we think we're doing, like, right away? There's Ten ships? Um, so for FY2019, the Navy is planning on buying ten ships. Uh, which is actually three more than their last shipbuilding plan had. 
Um, flipping through my papers right now. Um, okay, so for the Battle Force inventory, currently we're at 280 ships. Uh, so according to the Navy's plans, by the end of fiscal year 19, they'd be at 299. Um, so they, they increase by handful of ships every year. They would get up to the 326 figure that we had talked about in 2023 and then kind of start to drop down a little bit. So, you know, they hover in the 320s and 330s for a bit, um, and they don't ultimately reach their goal until beyond the 30-year ship plan that they submitted. Um, they're talking about the mid-2050s until they would reach 355, which uh, actually one of the interesting things out at West last week, um, you know, there's been a little bit of debate amongst lawmakers about whether 355 ships is the right number, and whether the Navy has, you know, fully explained why it needs that number, why it needs that, you know, makeup of destroyers and cruisers and aircraft carriers and everything within that 355 number. And uh, what the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Richardson, told me is, you know, that might not be the 100% right answer, uh, but there's generally a consensus that it needs to be something that resembles that. And if we're ever going to get there, we need to start building now. Uh, so his main message that I think we'll be hearing more during budget hearing season this year is, you know, just start building, you know, we have to start somewhere. So let's start building ships now. Um, and we can refine that goal once we get a little closer and get a better idea of how the operating environment evolves. But let's just start building ships now. Yeah. And of course, any projection that goes out 30 years is not going to be accurate. I mean, it's going to mm-hmm. be, it's, it, it's a, uh, it's a target to start moving towards. And then, you know, there'll be a constant adjustment, uh, you know, towards that target or towards it or towards another target, but that'll get you uh, in, in a direction. Um, Megan, back to a, a comment that you made about the, uh, uh, at West, the six, six pronged approach and the networked, uh, aspect of the Navy, the increasingly networked aspect and ability to share targeting information. And I caught some of those discussions as well. They seemed sort of juxtaposed against the theme of West, which was near peer competition. Are we ready now and into the future, which talked about a lot about, you know, working in and living in and fighting in a denied environment, right? A2AD mm-hmm. and, you know, up against, uh, you know, Russian forces with long range uh, supersonic or hypersonic uh, coastal defense cruise missiles in the Baltic or, you know, the, the Chinese in the South China Sea. So, you know, sort of interesting to hear the Navy planning for cyber war, hyper war, very connected operations, the ability to move data securely, but at the same time talking about operating in a denied environment where you don't have access to information, where command and control is degraded. So uh, I, I just found that to be an interesting sort of juxtaposition last week. This is sort of you know, we're moving forward with new technologies, but at the same time, those technologies may be denied to us uh, when we're fighting a near-peer competitor. A- any thoughts on that? Yeah, the same thing struck me, actually. Um, There were a few folks who said this, one of them on the type commanders panel, uh, Brigadier General Smith uh, with 1st Marine Division said, you know, they have all these tools that they're incorporating. Um, They're doing high-end training. They're preparing for that high-end battle. Uh, But he also said, you know, if there are zero comms on the battlefield, my Marines are better trained than anybody else's forces, and we're going to win in that environment, too. Uh, So I think they're very much tailoring their training to if we have the connectedness that we want, you know, we have the F-35s in the air, they're sending information to our radios, they're sending information back to the ship, 
Um, they, they need to be able to train to those new tools that they have at their, um, at their hands. But they also understand that, you know, they might not have connectedness to anybody. Um, so I, I really like that comment that he made that in a, in a zero communications environment, they'll win that fight too. Yeah, I heard that, that comment too. And, and I was pleased not only by General Smith's comments, but also it, it seemed like a lot of the, the seniors that were talking, uh, you know, panelists, that they have done more thinking and also more to prepare for the high-end fight than perhaps uh, I suspected they had over the last, you know, year or eighteen months, right? That they are, they were, they were very much on top of this this topic, and they had, they they're thinking about it, they're training towards it. You know, Admiral Swift mentioned the fleet problems that they've brought back out in the Pacific Fleet, where they're assigning strike groups a specific tactical problem as they start their deployment, and they play that until either they succeed or they fail, and they they learn whether it's a failure or a success. Um, you know, you heard the, uh, uh, those different warfighting commanders talking about, uh, about just the, the kinds of things that they're doing to prepare for, uh, an electromagnetic fight, uh, MCON conditions, um, you know, increasing lethality across the force. So I was, I was pleased by that. I was also pleased to, to listen to some of the junior officers, uh, particularly the, the surface, uh, warfare tactics instructor panel, that was on Wednesday, where you had six uh, SWOs who were WTIs, new, newly minted uh, WTIs, and how that program, which was sort of uh, based on the, the uh, aviation Top Gun model, the, the WTI model in the aviation community, and the impact that that's having on the tactical thinking and training in the surface force. Well, the, somebody asked a question today of, of Admiral Brown, uh, Megan, I don't remember exactly if it was the uh, the older gentleman in the back or who it was that asked that question, but it was about the sort of near peer readiness. And and mm-hmm. Admiral Brown also mentioned that Comp Two X has high threat scenarios and and that sort of thing. But I think the point is well taken. Is and the the he pointed out that you know the Army has actually been involved in. The, sort of the ground war in a way that that has sharpened their skills insofar as uh, uh, asymmetric threat does that right. You could say the same thing about the the army or the Marine Corps. You haven't gone against another conventional army of any magnitude. You've been fighting insurgents, right? Just like the Air Force hasn't done anything against any Air Force that was mm-hmm. had any or an integrated air defense system. So. I thought it was interesting that Admiral, along the lines of what Bill was just saying, is Admiral Brown said, oh, no, we've really upped our game in terms of the turnaround training that we do. But I think the point is well taken that until you actually are in it, you know, training is one thing and the real real world is another. And so I point to the Gulf of Aden situation uh, with with the two um yeah. mason and nitza yes uh, yes which is a great example 15 16 months ago right the degree to which we dodged a bullet which is a bad pun is <laughs> we've talked about it before in on the show but had uh nitza was the one that was not on the step which one was the one that was ready yeah. mason shot and yeah and, and knocked down the the cdcms okay right. so had and nitza did not had nitza been popped we would have been having a whole nother discussion about readiness and state of tactical whatnots in the wake of 17 years of a counterinsurgency where all these discussions we had at West, 
you know, fighting through the threat to get to the objective, choke points, the things that even the common Marine Corps is talking about, you know, you take us there and then we fight, right? But imagine we had to help you fight to get there. You know, it's a whole new, well, maybe all of the environments we go to in the future won't be so permissive. So um, back to the budget then, then Megan, uh, are you seeing a, because a, a few years ago, the QDR talked about this thing called the Pacific Pivot. And we're talking about, like, this was 2009. Yes. You know, we were talking about the Pacific Pivot. And it seemed to be way in front of where we were in terms of the war in, wars in the Middle East. But now, because of the near peer, you know, drumbeat, it seems more reasonable to recapitalize the force based on the idea that you would be going against a China or a Russia. Right. So does the budget reflect that, Megan, or is that kind of what we're seeing? Uh, that's still something we're trying to figure out what specifically it's tuned to. Um, I mean, they do have a significant amount of money in there for um, for operations and maintenance, you know, the high end training funding that they're looking for. Uh, you know, back at West, it was actually very interesting because a few of the speakers did sort of mention a Russia threat. And the Navy has been very focused on a Pacific, you know, most likely China threat for a little while. Um, but particularly on the Marine side, they, they made several comments about, you know, ground training, you know, uh, artillery coming at you in the air, that type of thing, which is not what we had been hearing recently. Um, so I think we're going to see that incorporated a little bit more into the exercise plan. Uh, but to what Bill was saying, you know, the, the training is going to have to get more realistic because the Navy has not had an at-sea battle uh, like they're preparing for. Um, you know, if you're not doing it in real life, you have to train to have a good fidelity uh, to be prepared with those skills. Um, the the Navy, you know, the Comp2X that you mentioned earlier, they're getting much more sophisticated in terms of, you know, not just having the ships in the strike group training together, but they're bringing in uh, submarines to play adversary submarines. They're bringing in P-8s in the air to help hunt for those submarines and share data. And so, you know, the training is getting to be very high-end and very realistic, uh, but it also makes it that much more expensive. Um, so that's one of the things we're trying to understand, you know, to what extent the budget that was just released supports that type of training. Yeah, that's a great point because, uh, you know, Ward and I both have been uh, associated with uh, both training on the blue force side on a carrier strike group where you're depending on uh, red air, right. Or orange air sorties coming at you to get the reps and sets that you need to do your, you know, air, air defense, uh, your intercept operations, your escorting, you know, uh, a red fighter, uh, away from the strike group or, you know, and, and that takes a lot of sorties from the beach, from the red air guys. And that's expensive. It's expensive to get an air wing that just came back from deployment to do those sorties for you. Or it's expensive to hire out to the contract uh, aviation companies that fly, uh, you know, Cat 3 or Cat 4 bogeys uh, against you. You know, either way, it's expensive to get that kind of training, particularly in the numbers of sorties that you need to carry, you know, to, to, to train a carrier strike group or, or two strike groups in a sophisticated, you know, uh, denied environment uh, simulation. Sure. And a lot of a lot of what's being talked about right now deals with the submarine force um, at less at West last week, uh, Admiral Tafala was talking about the need for more sub-on-sub training uh, before they head out. And the surface force wants more submarines, you know, to act as the Red Force as well. So the submarine force is 
currently one of you know the most in demand with the combatant commanders. So there's operational needs for them. There are training needs for them. They have to take of their take care of their own training and certifications for those submarine crews. Um, so there's a lot of demands being placed on them right now. So trying to understand, uh, you know, what's going to be required to support that high level of operations for them is going to be interesting to watch how that plays out. Yeah, good point about submarines. And it brings back the uh, probably the, the most popular quote of West last week was when General Neller uh, on Thursday <laughs> in the in the Sea Service Chief discussion uh, specifically said, we need more submarines. We need more attack submarines. And and the CNO, you know, reached over and was almost going to hug him. Um, and, and the specific quote, the 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 um, context of the quote was uh, General Neller said, if I look at requirements as part of a naval force, part of a maritime campaign, we need more attack submarines. And then he went on to say, when was the last time we had to fight to get to the fight? Meaning that Marines have essentially just, you know, been delivered to the fight to Afghanistan or Iraq. And then they've they've fought the, you know, the counterinsurgency, the terrorists. Um, but in, in the Pacific or in the Baltic, in, in those scenarios, it's going to take a fight to get there. Right. This the A2, the A2AD environment that they're going to need to move to in the East China Sea, South China Sea scenarios, or in the Baltic, or in the Eastern Med, uh, you know, that that involves the Navy having to fight to get there to, to disembark Marines to go and project power ashore. Well, well he was even more, uh, he was even more, um, what's the word? Because he, not only did he say we didn't have to fight to get there, but when we got there, we didn't quite have a mission, and we kind of figured it out on the fly, right? So it, it's even more the the degradation of skills since 9-11 has been more than just to be able to fight through a non-permissive environment to get to your objective. It's also, he mentioned, it was sort of, it was semi, not cynical or sarcastic, but he's just like, we we just got dropped there and then we figured it out. Right. right. And we didn't and, have a you know, mission. And, and not, not to downplay the, you know, the criticality or the lethality of the fight in places like Fallujah, where, you know, Marines fought door to door, house to house in, in urban combat. But what, yeah, what General Neller was kind of getting to was that they haven't had an enemy firing artillery back at them. Yeah, right. But they haven't but had to the Fallujah example. That's exactly right. So they get on a amphib or they get C-17 over there. They land, they set up Camp Rhino, they get all of their force protection squared away. And they're like, so now what should we do? What do you want to do? Right. And so Fallujah was something that emerged as a function of the way that the insurgency iterated. It wasn't what they went there. It's not like you left Camp Lejeune right. knowing you'd be fighting in Fallujah. Right. Right. That was his point. They went in 2003 to uh, essentially go to Baghdad and they did against yeah. the Iraqi forces. Right. And then when that was over, suddenly they were faced with a, a counterinsurgency fight. And, yeah, but we went in 2001. Why? Right. I mean, partner with the Northern Alliance or was the Marines because the Marines oh, in Afghanistan was, yeah right, right. I, I'm talking about before Iraq there was this thing called Afghanistan which yeah. was the you know the 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 Al-Qaeda remember Al-Qaeda remember yes. those guys um, and and the Taliban and and that so the Marines you may remember I don't want to say they relate to the game but when they established that Camp Rhino it was several months after the Navy had begun the strike sorties and and the Air Force established the presence in the stands to the north, you know. So I, his his point is was that 
we've we haven't had to tailor our, either the way we're we're armed uh, or equipped or the way we're manned or anything for a long time for a generation right. really right you know so it's a, a pretty yeah, specifically for amphibious operations yes yeah it's uh, and so his point is well taken and again right. this this should shape the budget. But it might not. And so, Megan, you, you've already identified just in your prima facie look at the budget um, some incongruities between this sort of talk about doctrine and, and, and then the way the budget is laid out in terms of who, who are the winners and losers. Um, can, can you speak to any of those sorts of things? Sure. Well, you know, I think the biggest incongruity that we're seeing right now is just, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of very sincere talk about implementing recommendations from the comprehensive review and the strategic readiness review. Uh, But then when you start to see things like 30 percent more deployed forces, um, it it makes you wonder how you can do both at the same time. I do think, uh, you know, I haven't I don't have my finger on the numbers right now, but uh, to the point you were just making about Marines participating and fighting to get to the fight, uh, they have um, a CAC2S, is a Common Aviation Command and Control System. Um, I guess they did a test last year uh, using that on board an amphibious ship, um, and apparently it went great, and it helped the battle, and it helped them operate better at sea, participating in that you know fight for sea control. Um, so they they are planning on buying more of those systems than they previously uh, had planned on doing. So there are some signs where you know when you talk about fighting to get to the fight and integrating naval forces. Uh, to include more marine operations at sea. Um, I think there are some signs that they are trying to put their money where their mouth is. Megan, that system you mentioned, is that one that is installed on amphibious ships, or is it uh, you know, a vehicle-borne thing that can you know, drive into an amphib and then drive out onto so, an LCAC? It is actually a trailer-pulled command and control system. Uh, so I got to go see it at Cherry Point last year. Um, so they have a new Gator radar, uh, which is supposed to be their um, the new radar to track uh, air threats and ground threats. Um, and so they have this command and control system that supports it. Uh, the radar and the command and control system are all uh, trailer-pulled, so it's meant to help, um, you know, forward uh it's supposed to help ground units kind of get a better picture of the battlefield um but i guess they had it out on one of the amphibs and they figured they you know let's give it a go um i mean you may recall last year they also did a high mars test at sea uh so the marines are really looking to see how they can use you know some of their equipment out at sea for amphibious operations um but apparently having that additional command and control ability on a ship uh really benefited them you know the new lpds have some pretty sophisticated systems on it, but the older amphibious assault ships, the LHDs, um, are somewhat lacking in <laughs> some of their communications abilities. Uh, so having this extra system, so it, it looks like the Marines are going to be trying to procure more of those. Yeah, that, that's a great example of uh, another topic that I heard a number of uh, the panelists talking about was the idea of experimentation and mm-hmm. you know speeding up the Pentagon's processes of uh, procurement and, and, you know, budget-driven strategy or strategy-driven budget, uh, but also the idea that, hey, we, we have to be willing to uh, experiment and fail and try again and fail, and that failure is not, uh, you know, failure is not failure. Failure is just a learning point. Uh, Admiral Swift brought that up. There was some discussion on uh, some of the other panels also about, hey, we got to 
we have to do some experimental learning and we got to take some of these things out and try them and, and see what happens. So that, that's a, a really good example. Um, I'd also like to um, highlight uh, one, one person who was at West who, uh, as some of us on the staff here have said, he's a, a rock star, uh, particularly with the more junior audience, is uh, August Cole, who's the uh, co-author of Ghost Fleet. Uh, he was a panelist, uh, a moderator of one of the panels, um, and then he was uh, a panel member of a, a discussion on hyperwar and the future of warfare. Uh, and, and August is, uh, he was just great. He was great to talk to on a sidebar after that uh, conversation. Um, but it was just, it was great to have him. And I think a lot of people said, oh, August Cole's here, you know, and then get to see what he looks like and then go up and hear him, uh, you know, because he wrote a, a, a what what I think is a, a piece of fiction, uh, Ghost Fleet, which is as important to the Navy today as perhaps Hunt for Red October was back in the 1980s when Ward and I were JOs. Yeah, he's uh, he's about six six, and he looks like he's twenty two years yet. old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's you know when you look at his profile, it's one of those he doesn't look anything like you thought he would look. But great, like you said, great guy. Uh, what a blast to have him there. Uh, I like you was a fan of Ghost Fleet. I'm a fan of Ghost Fleet, so it's great to meet the the co author. He has another book like that in work with Peter Singer, so we'll look forward to that coming out. That's. Uh, that's a super cool thing. So, Megan, what else is on your radar at the moment? I know this is obviously a budget focus, but is there anything else percolating that uh, the, the, the viewers should uh, be looking out for? Uh, well, with the budget being out this week, uh, getting ready for the Navy leadership to start um, some hearings on the Hill. Actually, right as we're speaking, probably, there's um, a hearing on readiness that all the services are participating in. Uh, but pretty soon we're going to start having uh, the new uh, Assistant Secretary for Research, Development, and Acquisition. Secretary Gertz is going to be on the Hill uh, the first week in March to talk about Navy acquisition programs. Uh, we have a few other big hearings coming up where uh, Navy leadership will be sort of explaining what the priorities are, how the budget supports those priorities, and, you know, what, what additional support they need from lawmakers. So, um that should be a pretty interesting process this year. Uh, as you may know, in previous years, lawmakers have been, particularly on the House Armed Services Committee, have been very aggressive with the shipbuilding plan. Uh, they actually added in a handful of additional ships last year that the Navy did not request. Um, they have a very keen eye towards what the industrial base needs and kind of the quickest and most cost-efficient way to get to 355 ship Navy. Um, so I imagine we're going to see more of that this year, but I guess that remains to be seen. <laughs> uh, but that, that's the big thing we have our eye on is sort of how lawmakers are going to be responding to this budget request. So we're, we're, we got only a couple of minutes left, but for the unlearned listener, what happens to the budget next? What, 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 is it, what does it go through? Um, so first, the um, the authorizers on the Hill are going to take a crack at it. So these are the, the House and the Senate committee that make defense policy. Uh, they're going to go through, they're going to sort of weigh in on uh, whether the Navy should be spending more or less on training and on shipbuilding and on aircraft procurement and weapons and personnel and every other thing that ends up in the budget. So they are sort of the policy setters. Um, so they're going to take a crack at the budget next and pass the National Defense Authorization Act, 
which outlines how they view the military spending should be uh, for the next year. Then the appropriators are going to take a crack at it, um, both on the House and the Senate side, and actually put money to the bill. Um, those two bills don't always match up with each other, uh, but both of them, both the authorizers and the appropriators, have been pretty aggressive with uh, you know pushing the Navy to to buy more and to do what it needs. Um, to kind of safely operate given the high demand for naval forces right now. Um, so it should be a pretty good one to watch this year in terms of, you know, what Congress wants the Navy to do versus what the Navy's asking for. Great. Hey, Megan, thanks so much for being with us today and for all the coverage uh, that you and Sam and uh, Ben have provided on the, the budget rollout this week. Uh, and also for your coverage of West last week. Um, in the in the light of uh, upcoming stories uh, for proceedings proceedings today, we got. I wanted to just highlight two things. We have a piece by uh, Naval Academy graduate class of 2017, Ensign Strong, who will be publishing tonight. He's writing on AI. He was a cyber major at the Naval Academy. Just retired or just uh, graduated graduated <laughs> Sorry, last year. Um, but it's an interesting piece because, and it's the, the best AI piece that I've read in the last year, uh, and that's probably an indicator of, you know, sort of my poli-sci background, so not not so much, uh, you know, other people are probably writing very smart things that I just don't understand, but Ensign Strong brings it to uh, an application for the fleet, and he, he highlights that recently there was a uh, an AI bot that was created by uh, Elon, one of Elon Musk's companies, that took on professional esport uh, athletes, if you will, who play an online game. Uh, and the bot, uh, which had only trained for this uh, competition for about two weeks, and it had the ability to play the game and then play the game against itself again and again and again. And it played millions of times, and it taught itself how to succeed at this game. And it beat every one of these professional athletes uh, that, that took it on. Uh, so this is AI that had not been programmed with how to play the game. It was just shown how to play the game, like a little bit of how to play the game, and then it played against itself, and in two weeks taught itself how to, play, how to beat the very best tacticians uh, in this particular online game. Very interesting. So we pu we're publishing that tonight. And then uh, next week we'll be interviewing uh, Captain Pete Pagano, U.S. Navy retired, who has a piece in the uh, February issue of Proceedings called Have We Forgotten How to Fight, which gets to some of the themes we talked about today, which is the fact that it's been since the end of the Cold War when the Soviet Navy uh, competed against the U.S. Navy for sea control. That we um, that we've had to you know deal with an adversary like that, and so Pete kind of harkens back to the Cold War, World War II, and things that the Navy is going to need to do to compete uh, against a pure competitor in a war at sea scenario. So we'll be interviewing Pete next week, and uh, that's the wrap up for episode 18 of the Proceedings Podcast. And thank you for joining us. Thanks, uh, Megan, again. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. <laughs>